This week's episode of Probably Science is brought to you by The Great Courses Plus. No matter who's on your gift-giving list for this holiday season, you can't go wrong with The Great Courses Plus. You can learn more about gift subscriptions by visiting thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. And while you're there, start your own journey with a free 14-day trial. So it may become clear in this podcast that it was recorded a couple weeks ago. Yeah, there might be a story that has moved on quite a bit since we broke it. So see if, see if you can work out which one it is, and I'll give you a clue. It's the one about the monolith. Yep. With that, enjoy. Probably science. Hey everyone, welcome to Probably Science. I'm Matt Kirshen. And I'm Andy Wood. Oh god, it seems like it seems like we have nothing but Jeopardy winners on this podcast <laughs> these days. I'm 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 leery of, of uh, Jeopardy overload. I don't I don't know if there's going to be Jeopardy fatigue among our listeners, but um, you know, strike while the iron's hot as well. So yeah, this is a returning guest, friend of the show, and previously the host of the Cracked podcast, now the host of the secretly incredibly fascinating podcast. It's the excellent Alex Schmidt. Hey, Alex. Hey, for, oh man, friend of the show feels so nice. Thank you so much. Uh, you guys are great. It's good to be here. Well, it's it's nice to have you here. Yeah, uh, y- you also did a full a full week's worth of Jeopardy a while back. Yeah, I and I'm I'm I was I saying congratulations off mic, but now now that we're officially on mic again, congratulations, Andy. That was that was a Thanks. hell of a run. Just awesome. That was really fun. Yeah, I was just yeah. thinking the whole time how. As it as it continued, and with the Monday start, I was like, "This is bizarre how similar this is to Alex's run." <laughs> like, even we had five games, yeah. and we were within a thousand dollars of each other's total. I think also it was very eerily parallel. Yeah, when you when we because when we were texting, and then when I saw your run, I was like, "Yeah, that that's really on that track." Like that, and with your taping, because I'm very fascinated by the whole. Uh, coronavirus production situation like was yours also they taped five shows in a day and it's it's like that yeah yeah they kept that going so i'm sure in a lot of ways it was similar but just you know in in ways that are bizarre it was different like with the no audience thing was just such a strange to be playing to silence you know and then see the final thing and there's there's applause in it like oh that didn't that didn't happen it was just (laughs) well you said you said that you did have a very small audience of the other contestants yeah, they weren't really uh, the hottest audience. <laughs> <laughs> they yeah, were jerks. It's on record. It's on record. We got it now. Good. Cool. Like, yeah, I can't imagine I'd be the most enthusiastic yeah. for my potential yeah, totally. cha- uh, contest uh, <laughs> opponent. Well, as the day goes on, the, the ratio of the audience who are potential and who are um, past uh, who, who did not win <laughs> changes. So we can imagine That's that true. the. the, the enthusiasm might wane as the yep. day proceeds <laughs> and you're also just i i'd imagine if i were in that position i would be mostly just studying the game as intently as i can trying to yeah. work out things like the buzzer timing and everything exactly i mean that's why i was bummed that i was initially going to be an alternate <laughs> and they were like don't be don't be bummed you're being an alternate because they traditionally or they usually perform better because they've had a day seeing how it all works a day to be comfortable just getting around getting to and getting around the, the the set and and then when that they did they didn't end up using me as an alternate i was like oh i really wanted to at least watch and then they drew my name first and i was like now i'm gonna lose first and have to sit here watching games the rest of the day but um <laughs> what was your when you got drawn first in your day alex were you excited or dread dreading it or 
Yeah, I because uh, I also had the experience of being an alternate and then not oh. being chosen on alternate day and then returning. And I, I had that feeling of, oh, I've, I've gotten to watch this five times uh, just sitting there. And obviously the first four times you're on extremely high alert. And then the fifth game, when you know you're not playing, you just spectate. And, and it, it really did feel like a helpful thing to get to see the whole show in, in like the actual room and kind of take some of those jitters off. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, oh, and yeah, and for people who don't know, yeah, I, I did a like a Monday through Friday run ran, winning four times in uh, it aired October of 2018. Uh, but I think I took the test more than a year before that with the, the alternate thing in between and stuff. So uh, yeah, whole journey. Yeah. That's awesome. That's so cool. And did you have any like uh, particular memories of, of Alex interactions beyond what we, what we saw on, on the air? Oh man. I mean, it's also, it's the kind of thing where, and have you guys talked about the like game show laws where, where you kind of can't hang out with the host of the show for various right. reasons? We didn't get into uh, a lot, but yeah, that, that also was interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's, and I think they come from the quiz show scandals in the fifties and sixties. Like it's, it's a, it's a full on federal law where they have to do a bunch of things to, to avoid any hint of tampering or anything like that. So, so basically all my interactions with Alex Trebek were on TV. We, we were not allowed to like, like go shoot the breeze outside the show. Right. But every time I interacted with him, he was. I feel like a lot of times people are like, oh, that person passed. They were so nice. And like Alex Trebek was was not nice in the best way. Like he was extremely fun and a little would a little mess with you and was like all of the engaging things he seems like on TV. He was in person. Uh, yeah. And in, in my experience, he also like each game ends and now he has to go talk to one very excited person and two very disappointed people. And each time he would walk up to the podiums and say what I feel is the exact right thing for the, for that circumstance and to each person in turn. And it was really cool to get to see somebody put that effort in and put that time in and also have that like emotional intelligence and, and just wisdom and care going into it. I, I, I was really uh, impressed. Yeah. I hadn't really thought about that a lot until you said that, but yeah, it's almost like a doctor with bedside manner, you know, like you're dealing with yes. two very extreme differences in emotion and having to like thread that needle is not an easy thing to do. Yeah. He was really yeah. amazing at that. It's almost, it's almost a conversation group that shouldn't happen, but it yeah. does. And then it's, <laughs> and then he makes it work. And he did that what thousands of times it's it's really yeah. cool and Jeez. and by 20 you know when i was there 2018 he didn't need to uh put in his all into making that good but he did it, it really speaks well of him you know yeah such a pro such a great guy yeah I, and, and the fact that he was still keeping that schedule that he did when i was shooting when he was sick and covid was happening it's just it's amazing yeah i mean and and just your your entire experience it's so uh fascinating i don't know like like and 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 to to be distant about it and i know you did your your sort of audition for it over zoom right and and it, it's a whole thing that yeah. i'm glad they did as safely as possible but it's also uh just its own world its own thing it's so crazy because the exact place i'm sitting right now is where i did uh, you know the, the second <laughs> and, second and third rounds of my jeopardy tryouts on on zoom with um Sarah from the Clue Crew, and uh, it oh, was wow. just so bizarre. And I, I thought I would never get past those rounds, so I even like snuck a little 
Um, you weren't supposed to document any part of it because, you know, there are questions that they're going to reuse for other people's tryouts. <laughs> but I still snuck a little, like, selfie from the side. So I would have, like, I'm like, this is going to be my only Jeopardy memory is me looking at my laptop screen at my kitchen counter in Joshua Tree. Uh, and then it ended up not being the case. So I, I was sure they weren't going to go back into production during COVID and with Alex being ill, but um, it's it's just so lucky and fun that they did. Um, uh, that, oh, go ahead, sorry. No, go go for it. What are you going to say? The, the other thing that we... So we talked to Charlie Fonville, who ended my streak the day after that happened. Um, but the thing that I didn't get to talk to him about that you have in common with me is uh, the dealing with the changes between the outfit changes between episodes, which was like a big stressor <laughs> for me as a person who's bad at clothing. And I wonder, did you have oh. five out, five outfits that you were confident in? And in non-COVID times, was there a wardrobe person there to like steam them and have them ready for you? Or You know, I in hindsight, I'm realizing I'm glad you have to bring five outfits and that's just what it is because I'm confident that if... If I had had any options between games, I would have just sweated that and tried to like go shopping or something, you know, like, <laughs> like I, I, the, the weeks running up to taping, I was at Macy's probably four times, like returning things or picking new things or trying to like, uh, just feel good about how I was going to look. I think it turned out okay, but it is a thing that you, I'm sure you experienced too, where, uh, for me, I think it was about 10 minutes between games and it's so with crazy the walk fast. all the yeah. way back to the room. And my, my routine was like, uh, go into the little closet thingy to change, try to breathe and then change and then use the bathroom, sip of water, sip of coffee. And then they need you for makeup. And then you're back out there. Like it, it really is not, uh, a, a, a long amount of time and it was it, fine. Like it, it, maybe it's better to just go right back in and not like sit and sit and stew on what happened, but yeah, uh, yeah it's rapid. I was I was shocked at how fast it was. And we weren't able to use the green room because of COVID. So our green room was the Wheel of Fortune stage. So we had to walk all the way across to a different building in that same amount of time. And Jimmy from the Clue Crew was acting as contestant coordinator that day. So he's so I'm also like thrilled that I get to, you know, be interacting with this guy I'm also a fan of from the show. Uh, but he's also sure, very yeah. very business uh, you know, I'm sure because of the same quiz show rules you're talking about. So he's just kind of trying to like hasten me <laughs> along and get me changed quickly. But yeah, with no one there to like approve the clothes or anything. And like my shopping experience was a COVID shopping experience. Cause I have, I've been living oh. in shorts, shorts and flip flops in, in the desert all summer. So I had to go buy everything in one trip to Nordstrom rack, but you can't try things on cause of COVID. So like I have, ill-fitting pants uh, and just like a dozen shirts that I was just like, hopefully in between shows, someone in their staff is going to like pick out what I should wear and I could just put it on. But instead I come back and it's like, here's your pile of clothes as you left them draped over the chair on the Wheel of Fortune stage. Go pick something out. And I was like, ah, this is just so... And then like Jimmy's helping me cut the tags. So I bought all these things. I bought like $600 worth of clothes. I'm like, I'm just going to return whatever I don't use. And yeah. also, if, if I win, I can justify cutting the tags off something because I've just won. <laughs> so I'm trying to cut the tags off this jacket or sport coat or whatever. And like, there's so jackets have so many unnecessary things to be cut off of them that you don't see. So then I'm wearing it. And Jimmy's got scissors. He's in the back of me trying to cut off all the things that I missed on this jacket while also like trying to hurry me along. There's just this extra <laughs> level of stress. When I, all I wanted to think about was trivia. And it's just like, I'm thinking about clothes and I hate clothes. So that was just an extra little level of, ah. Uh, we, this we ever happens again. <laughs> we talked about this a bit on the uh, the Charlie episode, but um, Alex, did you? How much thought had you given in advance to your betting strategy, particularly when it came to Final Jeopardy? So I put a lot of thought into all but one part of betting strategy, 
because I thought a lot about each Daily Double as its own separate thing. I thought about Final Jeopardy in a lot of different ways. And then I did not think about how to bet if it was a lock game in Final Jeopardy. And I'm not uh, uh, not to brag, but I had, I think, two of those. But then uh, one of them I bet $0 because I just thought, well, I already have all that money and I don't want to lose a chunk of it and I can only bet a little bit anyway, so I'm just going to keep it. And then I got the question right, added $0 to my total, and Alex Trebek walked over, gave me grief about it. Uh, I think <laughs> the immediate first thing he said was, what, did you not feel good about the category or something? I'm paraphrasing, but uh, in a very fun and, and thrilling way, gave me grief about it. And well, how, uh, how much how much ahead of double your second place person were you? I think I went back and looked. I think it was like three thousand. So, uh, you know, it was an amount of money that I, I could have added something if I wanted to. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah. But I had I had done all kinds of like mathy and strategic thinking about like about every betting situation, except if it's a runaway game. Do I just want to keep what I have or add to it? Uh, right. And so one of the times I did zero, and I think I mean I don't, I don't want to put words in his mouth, especially because he he is no longer with us. But I feel like Alex Trebek always had a rooting interest in the winner making the most money possible. Like he just he like his, he was rooting for big wins every time, and I think yeah. it really uh, like legitimately irked him that I didn't stack up a few more thousand. He was he was <laughs> like. It was like, come on, it's mythology. You can do it. But I, yeah. I just want to keep what I had. So, so do you it. remember what that question was? It was the the upshot was it was about the the twelve labors of Hercules, and it, it wasn't. I, it probably wasn't that hard of a question. Yeah. Oh, okay. I'm not super uh, confident so in it. mythology. Yeah. 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 But that's sure the thing. There's endless mythology throughout the world. I don't know what it's going to be. Oh, you know? So yeah. that's why I, I that's why I didn't, you know, go big. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't have even thought of that. I would have just assumed that it means Greek or Roman, but um, yeah. Could yeah. It be. could be just like sort of folk mythology in your local town. <laughs> yes. It's Paul who who Paul drunk Paul's 20 beers seen? and then still passed his driving test. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Are you talking about Sully? Yeah. What is Sully? Who oh, is yeah. Sully? <laughs> Sorry, we can't accept who is Sully. Every day on this day, we gather to honor Sully. <laughs> it was a night the not unlike tonight. You say if you listen to the wind in the trees, you can hear. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear it whistling through the hole that he left. <laughs> When I and also and one one Andy thing you you clearly thought through tons of betting strategy and did some very uh, you know just skillful maneuvers there like it's really it's a it's it's totally worth prepping that kind of thing like sometimes people ask me hey how should I prep for Jeopardy if I ever do it and I tell them to watch the show a whole bunch and think through betting uh, and not spend so much time like learning entire new chunks of knowledge because that's just not very feasible. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know what? You did advise me. I called you beforehand to ask advice and you said, don't bother studying because you're sort of, you're going to be where you are knowledge wise. But I was like, there are some areas that I know are gettable that I'm not there yet. Like I didn't know all the presidents in order and now I do. And I, oh, I, cool. pl I yeah. played around with some maps online, like some children's geography websites where you drag and drop countries into place. And literally the night before taping, I, you know, I was trying to get African geography down, but it's hard. I don't, there's, I think there are 50 countries. Um, mm -hmm. I, I may, maybe I know half, but uh, the Americas. I was like, this is. I can get North, Central, and South America, every country and capital. This is gettable. 
Uh, so the night before taping, I'm doing that for this for Central America. I'm dragging and dropping these countries and capitals into place. And then the next day, Central America comes up as a category and I have control of the board. And I go straight to <laughs> I go straight to a thousand and I'm like, it's gonna be Tegucigalpa. I just know it is. It's a fun word to say. And it's a fruit bat song that I like, whatever. So I'm like, a thousand, it's gonna be Tegucigalpa. Sure enough. Tegucigalpa is the capital of this, and I'm like, boom, Honduras. And then eight hundred was Lake Managua, and I mean I've been to Nicaragua, so that's why I knew that. But um you know, sometimes studying, I don't know, would I have been as confident sure. on Tegucigalpa had I not just, so I would, I would say for things that are like a concrete, a finite number of pieces of knowledge, like knowing all of the state capitals, knowing all the countries in the world, knowing all the presidents in order, I think it's worth putting in time to try to get those things. Books of the Bible, British monarchy, if you can, Shakespeare, major plays, but it's hard yeah. to study. Yeah. That's dead on. Yeah. I think because also watching the show a bunch beforehand, it then chimed in my brain every time I was like, they keep doing classical music and I know about it. But if I just spend some time like refreshing what I know, that can go a long way. Uh, and yeah. then, you know, how then do you, maybe you get a few questions. How do you do classical music, though? I mean, that just seems like such a daunting, like bigger field than and I know some, but I just don't even know how I would study that quickly. You know, I, that one, I actually, I did, I made a list of who I thought were like the 10 composers that might come up, uh, partly from just like watching a couple games where that came up. So it's not a perfect system, but it actually, there was a, I, I that jumped to mind because there was a classical music category on one of my games. And then I, I think I got probably two more questions than I would have got otherwise. Oh, that. Nice. so that was cool. That was like the, that was the one time that paid off, I think. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, I might have to study. We'll see. I don't know if is it, there's actually a chance I'll make the tournament of champions. It's not a lock by any stretch. I think five, if five people pass my get, get a five game streak or pass my winning total in the rest of the season, I'm out. But if not, I'm in, in which case I got to start boning up again. So if listeners have any advice on how to study classical music and the British monarchy and things like that, we should try to get a memory expert on the show as a, Oh, that'd be cool. Oh, That's a yeah. great idea. Yeah. <laughs> if this happens, I'm going to, I'm jinxing it by saying it out loud, but whatever, it's a possibility. Uh, just by the way, I don't know if anything's coming through in the microphone, but it's not me currently purring or sniffing. I've, oh no. Was uh, I sniffing? No, no. It's the cat. I've got a cat. Oh, who oh, is, I don't know. The don't cat know. has that just like stuff locked... you do, Matt. That yeah. sounds like stuff you do. I don't know. <laughs> I just, I just, ne- he, he was just sniffing right around the microphone. So I don't, I don't know whether it's come through in anyone's ears. <laughs> just sort of oh, I didn't hearing this sort yeah. of creepy deep breathing. <laughs> oh, I just, I just need to, you to know that it is a one and a half year old cat rather it's than me. Doug, correct? Doug, Douglas, Doug, the cat. Douglas, the cat. Oh, great name. Douglas T cat. Um, and now he's attacking me. There we go. Um, yeah, I, I remember what you were saying about the rules of game shows. That was even you, you wouldn't have thought it, but Last Comic Standing when I was on it, because there's a cash prize, is technically is bound by American game show laws. Oh, so I they. So you Even were like within, zoned off from the hosts and the judges. I think I don't think it was as strict on that front. I think I'm pretty sure we we were able to spend a little bit of time chatting to the judges and the host, but I know that they were very careful whenever there was a challenge about um, filming. Like a producer would explain all the rules of the challenge to us on camera, and then they would film each of us verbally agreeing that we have heard and understood the rules. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. I it's it's not a great story because I don't remember the exact details, but there was one part of one of the Jeopardy games where 
there was just like an error. I, I think I think they picked the wrong person to go next with the board or something. And so then they had to film us fixing it, basically. They were like they they on camera with a producer had us each agree that the step backward that they were taking made sense. And, the, and then in the edit, they just removed it. Yeah, because it's necessary. Yeah, there were a few moments that I realized on, on watching that were changed from my taping to airing. Like when he asked me about Portland and then and the Bridgetown Comedy Festival, the setup to that was about Portland being in the news for, you know, not the best reasons. And I was kind of like, oh, sort of cringed at that being the intro to that. And, you know, oh. didn't, didn't mention that at all. You know, I forgot if he said in his initial question to me, are things okay there now? Or, you know, so I didn't yeah. even address that. I just talked about the festival. And then when I saw the edit, they must have had him. Um, it doesn't even look like it's a pickup, but, you know, somehow ask it differently. So it's just about a festival in Portland and no mention of it being in the news for uh, social unrest, you know. And actually, yeah, he, re- sure. he, he rewrote one question on the fly because he didn't like the wording about Pringles. Um, there was a question that said, like, Pringles canned the holidays by putting out this flavor of, uh, you know, I don't know if it's pumpkin spice or something. And he was like, he's like, canned, canned the holidays. What does that mean? And the head right at the table is like, you know, like they put it in a can, like the concept of the holiday. And I, I almost wanted to like, I thought I could bridge the gap in what was happening. Cause I think the writer didn't want to ask Alex if he knew that Pringles were in a can, you know, cause maybe that sounds kind of silly. Oh. Like, if, if he of course knows that, but maybe he didn't know that this is a potato chip that's sold in cans. And that's why he's My guess he is he it. did know that, but he was thinking, well, but canned the holidays is not an expression in any way. Canning or, things like putting them in a can. I don't know. Like, but but putting an abstract concept in a can. That's why I, mean, I think that's a, they're playing on the concept of canning being a physical thing. But you could can a concept. I just didn't know. But, if but they then were when I hear that, I kind of think of canning same. meaning to sort of get rid of something. Like right, like right. you got like canned a from a job. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's what he was. But I was just like, I'm like, do I? This is not an appropriate thing for a contestant to try to help uh, help <laughs> help arbitrate right now. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. But then in the I end, I got some alts. See... If you want to listen, I've just got, <laughs> yeah, got some yeah. writing notes. <laughs> if, if I had stepped in and tried to be like, I think what he's trying to say is that, and I can't even imagine if Alex would have had to be like, yes, Andrew, Andy, I know that Pringles are in a can. Like that would have been like, the worst thing in my life. So I'm glad I said nothing. And then the version they used in the show was perfectly fine. So it all worked out, but um glad I didn't like, uh, mansplain. Well, I guess we're all men, whatever. I uh, explain, try to, uh, um, actually, I think what he's trying to say <laughs> What if, like, what if you did that and then you won that game and then the intro to the next game, he's like, our returning champion, Andy, thinks I'm stupid. Um, other, than that, other than that, he's great, but um, really resent that. Don't like it. Anyway. Oh. Lesson learned. Sometimes you don't have to say things that you think you know. You can just let things happen. Yeah. Oh, it's taken me a good 40 years to almost know that. Yeah, I'm not saying, I'm not saying I do at all. But, uh, oh, yeah. Someday. Yeah. <laughs> so usually when we start off the episodes we ask our guests what if anything is their background in science but as a returning guest the listeners can refer back to an earlier probably science with alex schmidt um but i mean you do host uh, you are very science minded in your podcast hosting has anything come up recently in your discoveries that you find particularly interesting and uh in in the vein of science you know i it's not out yet, but I just taped an episode about grapefruit, and people can go ahead and know this. Uh, taped one about grapefruit, and I found out that prior to researching it, I knew uh, basically nothing about citrus. 
it turns out citrus are amazing at hybridizing with each other and and almost all citrus come from just a couple ancestor fruits and it's it's completely fascinating i i love that citrus are that weird that's awesome. It's like when I found out that every avocado comes from like one dude named Haas's avoca- avocado tree or something like that. Well, all, all uh, bananas are, the same spe- are all not the same species. They're the same genetic clone. Bananas, you said? Yeah, bananas are the same. Awesome. The cabbage, well, at least right? all the ones that we get in a supermarket. There are other species of banana, but everyone pretty much that is sold worldwide is this one type. Yeah, because of that... that- tropical disease that wiped out the last iteration of bananas. Yeah, we're like onto something like our yeah. third or fourth banana. The gross Michelle yeah. was replaced with the Cavendish. <laughs> yep, and it's the Cavendish now, is it? It's Cavendish, yep. Yeah, I pre-ordered the Banana 5, but I haven't gotten it yet. <laughs> Hoping it comes through. That was actually a recent episode of Omnibus with Ken Jennings. It's just about the Cavendish banana. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So wait, the- so citruses are all one, um, they're all one co- common relative uh, is there a reason why you said grapefruit? Is there a reason why that one is always bad if you're on certain medications? Like grapefruit's always a thing you see you can't eat, right? More than other citruses. Do you do, do, do you know why that is? That is, yeah, that's another really interesting thing with grapefruit, and I think that's just separate from the uh, citrus cross hybridization okay. pollination yeah. kind of thing. But yeah, it's the the pomelo and the mandarin, and uh, I want to say one other ancestor. Uh, all from East Asia are apparently the ans- the the parents of every other citrus fruit that exists now. Like just things oh, were huh. paired and crossbred and put together, and then uh, grapefruits are a hybrid, and uh, and but many many other fruits like that are too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, awesome. The only other scientific grapefruit fact I know is that it. Um, hey, stop it! Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> I won't stop it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I should really put online. I've got a recording of. Um, so I did a, a short piece for a Radio Four show, BBC Radio Four show, a couple of weeks ago about the American election. So for the Now show, um, and I have a recording of the moment that Doug jumped on the bed and started eating the recording equipment. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've been taping podcasts. I have a little setup here where I sit on a stool. And when I finish, I get off the stool and open the door. And one of our cats loves to immediately run in and jump on the stool in my place. I believe <laughs> the cat wants to replace me on the show. <laughs> and I think people will love it. So I have to prevent it at all costs. Um, Is your cat named Leno? <laughs> <laughs> it was promised to me. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I, I, just wearing denim and collecting cars like I see what's up. listen I never spent any money that I make from the show it's all from the road it's uh... <laughs> I, I, I will I will definitely remind me to upload that clip because also I, I sent it to my family and my one of my sisters pointed out that I full named him <laughs> Wait, you, you <laughs> like what? it's not even a Doug it's like Douglas oh <laughs> oh yeah the discipline yeah that's uh, good what I was going to say is the only other scientific grapefruit fact I know is that it it interferes with medicine quite a lot. Well, that's what I was saying. Yeah, you can't you can't take it on yeah. certain medicines. That's oh, what I was saying. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I was too busy trying to cat wrangle. Oh, yeah, that's what I was wondering. But he said it's not related to it's it's. Or I was wondering why it's not other citruses as well. But um, we're not sure. Yeah, Listeners, I think it's just you know. something unique about it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's and it's also I mean, there, the whole show's full of grapefruit stuff, but it, it's also a hybrid that happened by accident. It was two different fruits from East Asia 
that um, that were either on purpose or accidentally combined on Barbados. And we know like approximately when and approximately where it went from there. And, and so it's it's an accidental fruit that, among other things, can cause you to overdose on drugs if you just don't know that it reacts with it in a bad way. Huh. Man, well, yeah, you know, it's a chaos fruit. I love it. <laughs> That's awesome, Matt. Your your, your destructive uh, your destructive cat reminds me that we got an email from listener Addison Godinez about how color changing cats might warn future humans of radioactive waste. Oh, get in there! Yes. Uh, so, as the UK gets ready to build more nuclear plants, scientists are looking for new ways to tell our distant descendants where we've buried our sludge. Plans for a new fleet of UK nuclear power plants are, are underway. Last month, for example, Hitachi, the Japanese government, confirmed a plan to construct 5.4 gigawatts or gigawatts uh, of generating capacity at UK sites. But what about the waste? And what happens when in thousands of years, our descendants, who may not read any cur- current human language, find a store and put themselves in danger? A panel of scientists and linguists asked this question in 1981 when the U.S. Department of Energy commissioned them to find a method of ensuring that whatever's left of humanity in 10,000 years' time is warned off the sites we've been filling with radioactive sludge. (laughs) The panel panel reasoned that since few people can read texts that are only 1,000 years old, written warnings guaranteed to be understood by future humanity will be difficult to create. The answer may lie in nuclear semiotics, future-proof signs. Other options include hostile architecture, obelisks, or cats. So in 1984, writer Francois Bastide and semiotician or semiotician, semiotician, uh, Paolo Fabri suggested the answer could lie in breeding animals that react with discoloration of the skin when exposed to radiation. <laughs> Their role as a detector of radiation should be anchored in cultural tradition by introducing a suitable name. For example, Ray Cat. <laughs> in short, cats that turn, say, green when near nuclear material. <laughs> A legend passed on through the millennia would trigger a response in humans to get out as soon as possible. So wait, they're saying we can't pass on language what can be guaranteed to pass on the stories of the glowing cats. That's really, that's awesome. So the idea has recently gained fresh traction. The Ray Cat Solution Movement, formed in 2015, is working to, quote, insert Ray Cats into the cultural vocabulary. It's one of my favorite stories I've ever done, I think. And I just put the- the link to it in the show notes if you both want to look at it. Uh, they say it may be possible to harness some animals' innate capacity to become fluorescent or to absorb and emit light, but cats don't have the physiology to do that. Another way would be to engineer cats to glow using enzyme interaction, a what, mechanism what? used to study cellular activity. Why specifically cats? I, I think just thinking because they've been around so long, they probably will be around so long. And they're so sort of ubiquitous com- and they just companions? wander around places by themselves? Maybe. But wait a second. This article finishes by saying they don't have the physiology to do that. So it's just the fact that we know that we'll probably have cats in the, okay, wait, I got to click through to this Ray cat solution movement, uh, website. It's formed in 2015. Okay. If you go to the Ray cat solution.com. Is this a scientific study commissioned and carried out by a 14 year old boy (laughs) named Ray who loves cats. Yeah. Yeah, so this Raycat solution. And it's got a sword and (laughs) He rides a bear it also, cat. It, it feels inspired by a kid discovering black lights somehow. I know it's not <laughs> the same thing, but some like some kid who got a Spencer's Gifts poster was like, what if this was everything? What if this is how everything <laughs> works and we solve everything? <laughs> okay, I'm going to their FAQ on theraycatsolution.com because, again, if we can't do it, why are we trying? <laughs> so the first question, are you serious? They answer completely. Um <laughs> 
So, let's see. Is Ray, what if their FAQ page was just like, nobody's ever very curious about what we mean? I don't know. There's just no questions that get asked <laughs> when we say, we'll do the radioactive cats. Yeah. Uh, another FAQ. Are we actually working with cats? Not yet, and probably not for a while. The primary scientific goal is to establish a C. elegans, I don't know what the C stands for, lab. The ethical, safety, scientific concerns with working on cats are obvious, but we think this would make fantastic discussion and would love to have some people who do research using cats involved. Uh, are you working with radiation? Also, no. First rule of radiation safety is don't use radiation if you don't have to. Despite being an incredibly useful tool for many scientific studies that have revolutionized health and medicine, it's not something to play around with. So how do we think we're going to... Oh, I, I mean, I love it, but I also hate it now. Like Now that I see that there isn't a, an actual reason to think it's possible. <laughs> but they do have some good merch over on the RayCatSolution.com. I kind of just want this shirt that has a multicolored cat that just says RayCats. It's a pretty good... Just purely from a design perspective. <laughs> when, when Andy, when you were saying their other solution ideas, was the list like semiotics, obelisks, or cats? Was that right? <laughs> like I, that, such a range of answers. Like yeah, we I, totally figured it out. These five Mad Libs. Like, three really... types of signaling. <laughs> yeah. If we can pass on legends of Ray Cats, yeah. Why can't we pass on legends of? obelisks meaning nuclear or just legends of one particular symbol that's not even us current language but just or why can't we expect that just the symbol for nuclear radiation could be a thing that could be passed on with uh, this has so many questions but obviously i want there to be ray cats also we there's there's a okay we there are a bunch of older languages that we don't have much knowledge of or we've managed to garner a bit of knowledge from from things like the rosetta stone but yeah if you know that in advance, you can leave on long-lasting things like metal sheets or stone or whatever. You you can leave keys to the language. I mean, how do you future-proof a language? If you could do that, they would. I'm sure. Like, what is that? How, well, give me an example of how you'd do that. Well, I'm just I'm just thinking. I'm not I'm not good enough at linguistics to really think this through. But the the Rosetta Stone unlocked the key to understanding hieroglyphics by just having the same thing in, in three multiple, different languages. Yeah. yeah. And that was a very small passage of text. Like that was a relatively, you know, that's just one little fraction of one decree. And that was enough to unlock a language over years to come. Cause that was just, you know, that was the in. So you can demonstrate certain aspects of vocabulary by like, you know, having a picture of a cat and then the word cat next to it. And then having a picture of uh, a big cat and having big cat and then having a picture of a small cat and having writing small cat. And you go, okay, well, this word must mean the cat. And then this thing must qualify the size. And, you know, you can do you can do things like that that give people keys to the language. Yeah. And speaking of that, if we're assuming humans will look somewhat similar in 10,000 years, can't we just always make sure to leave a picture of a human in agony next to any nuclear waste site? <laughs> <laughs> Just a hieroglyph of someone vomiting profusely. And uh, I was going to say an X through it, but they won't know what an X is, but they'll know what a vomiting person is. Is the idea, are they, are they thinking that in a thousand years time, knowledge of why we have to avoid this area has gone. We just know that this is the bad place. This is the bad area that is where the devil lives. Yeah. All they need to convey (laughs) is that this is a devil place. Don't come here. Yeah. So this is where the cats that. glow. You could do that without cats also. <laughs> I mean, if there's a place where cats glow, I kind of want to go there, though. If I don't know why they're glowing, I just, I'm fascinated. I want to check it out. 
Yeah, it, like the more spooky we make the signs, the more the ten thousand years from now horror fans will want to go. Like it's just it's just so difficult to make something that's not to anyone's taste, you know? Right. It's like the <laughs> Simpsons thing. It's like when Chief Wiggum's like, Ralphie, why do you always want to go in Daddy's super secret closet of mystery? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> the catland, glowing catland. Yeah, it's a fun yeah. idea though, listeners. If you have a better way to future-proof nuclear waste. You can email probably science at gmail.com. But also now I kind of want to get someone from the Raycat program on our podcast, Raycat solution rather, unless yeah. they have no plans for how to do this. Just don't let them make off with Douglas. You know, we got to keep yeah. Douglas safe from these experiments. That's I don't I know. I, I think he'd enjoy glowing from time to time. <laughs> yeah. It's not an all the time thing. You're not always glowing. It's not like you're. Yeah. It's only when you're night. near radiation. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> So thank you, Addison Godinez for or Godinez for sending that story. And if you have uh, stories you want us to cover, you can email those probablyscience at gmail.com or tweet at probablyscience. Hey, Andy, you know how you and Alex are both Jeopardy champs. Hey, what's that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You. It, it seems strange that we didn't mention that at any point in this episode, but <laughs> yeah. you, you have both succeeded in winning multiple episodes of Jeopardy, which means somehow absorbing and retaining large amounts of information. Yes, I, I think you could describe us both as, as knowledge-hungry, curious sorts. <laughs> that's, that's exactly how I've always described you. <laughs> <laughs> a a KNCS, for short. Sure. Wait, K... Knowledge-hungry... No, wait, wait, wait K, KHCS. <laughs> okay. KH... Did you just like visually take off the, the, the hat on the H and the lowercase H? And That's exactly what I did. You know how I'm okay. always taking hats off in my mind. Right. <laughs> if I imagine anyone, it's always without a hat. Hatless letters. Yeah. I, you should. Yeah, it shouldn't become part of the, the letter's identity. Yeah, I have, I have a very, very, very specific version of uh, being unable to visualize. And I, I just can't visualize hats. That's all. Right. You're hat blind. I'm hat blind. So, uh, but but listen, it, this is a straight up fact that you did go through more than one course from our sponsor, The Great Courses Plus, to help you prepare for Jeopardy. Yeah, we talked about this before. I, I learned more about the British monarchy, which always comes up and is a gaping blind spot. I'm sure, I'm sure that uh, uh, that must anger you. Um, but, Furious. Uh, <laughs> you know how much of a monarchist I am. You, you love the monarchy. <laughs> I do. I have... Not a single tea towel in my house that doesn't have the face or crest of <laughs> at least one royal. But yes, the Great Courses Plus is uh, an incredible service where you can find information about a wide variety of subjects, and you can you can consume that information in uh, in video or audio form. And all these lessons are taught by by top notch accredited professors. Um, yeah, right, right, right. Now I'm I'm diving into one of their new courses that they've just dropped: an introduction to machine learning. And that's because there's a big machine learning story that we're going to cover, I think, in the next episode about protein folding. And I want to learn more about it. We talked about it a bit, AI and machine learning, in the episode with John Eric Hoffman about a few years ago. But still, I, I, I want to go deeper into this because one 50-minute podcast is not enough to get to grips with one of the biggest pieces of science and technology of the last, I don't know, last decade or so. Yeah, that's that's some in-depth technical knowledge but there's also tons of history and literature like i'm currently watching uh england the 60s and the triumph of the beatles because i'm a huge beatles fan even though i don't know the monarchy i still appreciate a lot of things about britain um, well hopefully 
you know, if, if the name of any of the Beatles comes up in a future quiz, <laughs> you'll now name, know them in order. I can also tell you all the all the people who have been considered fifth Beatles, whether whether those be. Um, the, uh, oh my God! I'm suddenly forgetting the name of their producer. Uh, whether that's George Martin or whether that's keyboardist Billy Preston, uh, their manager Brian Epstein. But anyway, these courses are all taught by very skilled uh, instructors who are selected not just for their knowledge but also for the quality of instruction. Uh, this one is taught by Michael Sheldon, who's a professor of English, Indiana State, where he won the top award for excellence in scholarship, um, and. Yeah, all of these are available to you for free if you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. You can have a free trial and uh, dip your toe in in all these different pools of knowledge, anything from ancient astronomy to science fiction to learning a new language. And it's, um, it's pretty much platform agnostic as well. You can listen to the lectures on your phone while you're driving as a podcast, or you can then get home and put them on the computer or on your, t- on your smart TV, and it'll pick up where you left off. And it's uh, it's such an easy and great gift for this holiday season. Uh, you know, when you're worried about giving things remotely, what could be simpler than setting up a loved one with a subscription to this service where they can use some of their holiday downtime to fill their brain with all kinds of fun information? And uh, maybe maybe one day they'll know all of the Beatles names. <laughs> <laughs> they can aspire to learn every Beatle. <laughs> That's all you need. The Jeopardy test was mostly just name the Beatles. It's uh, yeah. If the, you've got to, I've got to think of some kind of mnemonic so I can remember all, all four. <laughs> We've had these guys as a sponsor for a long time because uh, it's something that we really do believe in. It's it's a great yeah. It's a great way to spend your downtime um, on something that's that's fun but also very informative. So so once again for a free unlimited fourteen day trial where you can access any of the lectures, you can go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash probably. <laughs> Well, there was, by the way, also in the Guardian, this story. I'll I'll put this in the show notes here because this I think this is relatively relevant to what we were just discussing. This is a discovery by some helicopter pilots flying over a, a part of Utah where I was quite recently. In a remote part of Utah, found a strange monolith. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! This is a state employee who was counting bighorn sheep, and they discover this mysterious okay. monolith <laughs> that is estimated to be between 10, 10 and 12 feet high, which is about three meters for our metric friends, and appeared to be planted in the ground. It was made from some sort of metal. It's shine in sharp contrast to the enormous red rocks which surrounded it. Utah's Highway Patrol shared images of both the sheep and and the monolith, and it is just like it. It's very man-made. Yeah, it's very, very definitely it's, a man-made thing. It is so adorable of Highway Patrol to share the monolith and also bother to share the sheep. Like big yeah. sheep are really cool, but that's obviously not what people are showing up to the account for. Uh, really the, cute. I love the it. First of the two pictures is the sheep. Yeah, right. That's really bearing the lead. <laughs> like swipe for monolith? No, I want that first. <laughs> yeah. And it'd obviously thing, I will look at the sheep later, but but it'd be one thing no. if it's like like an advertising like thing you have to get through to get to that second one. I was like you gotta do it like after the jump, but like no, it's just yeah. side by side <laughs> pictures. Bad bad news guys, there's a monolith obscuring some of our sheep. <laughs> <laughs> it's really getting in the way of our sheep photo that we're trying to take. Oh is my this... god, what kind of sheep? Like, that's not the question. The question <laughs> is monolith. 
Great. <laughs> so, so the helicopter pilot, whose name is Brett Hutchins, told the local news channel KSL-TV, that's about the strangest thing I've come across out there in all my years of flying. He was flying for the Utah Department <laughs> of Public Safety, which was helping wildlife resource officers count bighorn sheep in the south of the state. One of the biologists is the one who spotted it. Uh, it takes a special scientist to notice that. And we just happened to fly directly over the top of it. He was like, I, and I quote, whoa, 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 turn around, turn around. <laughs> and I was like, what? And he's like, there's this thing back there. We got to go look at it. <laughs> that's that's some accurate reporting there. Hutching said the object looked man-made. It looks very man-made and appeared to have been firmly planted in the ground, not dropped from the sky. I'm assuming it's some new wave artist or something, you know, somebody that was a big 2001 of Space Odyssey fan, said Hutchins. <laughs> the monolith and its setting resembled a famous scene from Stanley Kubrick's 1968 film, which a group of apes encounter a giant slab. This is um, awesome. Yeah. I'm sure this is so new that by the time we put this out, I'm guessing this will have already been answered. So yeah, it'd be funny. someone's like, it's a drinking fountain. <laughs> yeah, just... yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to see if anybody online is already uh, coming up with funny or sincere theories. Um, it, it looks pretty cool. Okay, I'd like if you Google it, you can find better pictures that show side views. Because um, I wasn't sure if it was cross-sectionally uh, square. Tri I think it's cross-sectionally triangular, it looks like. But, oh, triangular, um, wow. I could be wrong. <laughs> I'm, I'm not seeing a full walk around. Uh, or yeah, no, wait, this is, is this is why the people who make movies need to be careful. Like, this is benign, but if you put something in a movie, like 2001 Space Odyssey, people will just go do it in real life. Like, kind of no matter what the movie is. You need to need to think it through. And they will add some joy to our lives. This, I mean, it does look really cool. I'm seeing a video of three yeah, men walking yeah. around it. and they, uh, they have also not revealed its exact location to avoid amateur explorers who may then get stuck in the wilderness trying to find it. Ah. Uh, oh, okay. How hard could it be to find? Well, I'm glad there's a picture of the sheep then, because now I know who to ask, like which one, you know? <laughs> like, I don't want to ask the wrong sheep where it is. I want to talk to the, the ones who are the there. Ones, the pictured sheep, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. The Huffington Post article says, if you left a monolith in a remote Utah canyon, authorities would like a word. <laughs> so if anybody's <laughs> misplaced a monolith recently... <laughs> Please do contact the authorities. Yeah. But you will yeah. be asked to describe the monolith accurately. Right. You don't just so get it back to... by yeah. It. yeah. So we know it's yours. Oh, actually, the Huffington Post article, I'll link to it because it also shows uh, one guy standing on the shoulders of another guy to look at the top of the thing. Yeah, Which in the Guardian article, cute. it says Hutchins <laughs> said, We were kind of joking around that if one of us suddenly disappears, then the rest of us make a run for it. <laughs> Whoever did this, I'm a big fan of your work. Please keep doing it. Yeah. Wherever you feel the need. And also, there is a suspect, as the artist, an artist named John McCracken, who lived in New Mexico and New York until his death in 2011 and made similar plank sculptures. Oh. Or could McCracken's his brother... gallerist, David Swermer, did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Do you think it could have been his brother, Phil? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's, it's very childish. <laughs> Why was he also an artist? Uh, he, he he had some projects. Uh, yeah. <laughs> By the way, is that Just the sound? giant cartoon characters of the desert? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Are we, is Doug making an appearance right now? I wasn't sure if I was hearing some Doug uh, Foley artist sounds. Yeah, that was um, 
he was trying to bur burrow under the covers. I'm I'm currently using the bed as a recording studio, and okay. he, he was tunneling. Nice, nice. So there you go, middle this weekend, Doug. Yeah. So if 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 this has not been solved by the time this airs, uh, please send in your thoughts on what this might be. I mean, obviously it's art, but make it more fun than that. <laughs> um, you know, there, we actually got a few different emails about glowing things. I don't know if two glowing stories is too many for one. Uh... No, give us another glowing story, Andy. Well, do you want to hear about platypuses glowing or Europa glowing or a Kilonova flash? I, well, this is going to sound strange. I was speaking to my friend Katie Golden on her podcast about platypus bioluminescence the other day. So I have spoken about that on a different podcast. Does that mean we should or should not cover it? Uh, you can probably skip it. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> Unless you're you really all, want to. I'm, I'm, I'm warm. I'm ready. Let's see. You're all glowing platypus doubt. <laughs> um, let's do Europa because I think Europa is a pretty cool moon in general. Um, is, is Europa the one that that um, that uh, Farah Alibe is working on a possible probe to. Do you remember that, Matt? Uh, that does ring a bell. That does feel right. Um, I will link to this article from the Atlantic. And I'm, am I right in thinking Europa is also one of the likeliest candidates for life? I believe so. I should know my moons better. Yeah. Um, I think it was one of the ones mentioned in Michael Marshall's book that we were talking about a couple of oh, episodes yeah, ago. yeah. So this is a this is sent in by a listener Jess Pearson. Thank you, Jess. Um, so one of Jupiter's moons might be glowing in the dark. At first glance, this is perhaps unsurprising. I don't know why that's unsurprising. Uh, our own moon glows in the dark, reflecting the light of the sun. Well, okay, if you're going to call it that. Um, Jupiter is far away from here, but our star still illuminates the planet and its many moons, including the moon Europa. But Europa is different from the others. According to new research, Europa might glow even on its night side, producing an ethereal glimmer without the help of the sun. The glow arises from the special nature of Europa's cosmic home. Jupiter's magnetic field is the largest of any other planet in the solar system, and the radiation within its boundaries is many millions of times more intense than the radiation near Earth. The high-energy particles constantly bombard Europa, a world slightly smaller than our moon, uh, with a wispy atmosphere. And when those particles strike the moon's ice-covered surface, a quirk of chemistry could make it glow in the dark. And they say could because scientists haven't observed this mysterious light show on Europa itself, but only here on Earth in a lab chamber that simulates the environment around the distant moon. Murthy Gudapati, a scientist at NASA's JPL, and his team created miniature versions of Europa's icy surface based on astronomy's current understanding of its composition and then bombarded them with electron beams. And at the touch of radiation, the simulated surface shone. So scientists will be... We'll get a chance to look for the real thing in this decade. NASA is currently developing a robotic mission to Europa named Clipper. I think that's the one we talked about. Set to launch in the mid-2020s. Clipper is designed wow. to orbit Jupiter, but will also carry out dozens of close passes to the icy moon, shifting its path each time so it covers new frozen ground. Uh, and it's one of the most intriguing moons in our solar system. The surface is so cold that the ice is as hard as concrete. Observations by spacecraft and ground telescopes alike show that the terrain is sprinkled with chemical compounds such as sodium chloride and magnesium sulfate. On Earth, we know these as table salt and Epsom salt. Epsom salt. Cynthia Phillips, a planetary geologist at JPL who works on the Clipper mission and was not involved in research, describes it in these extremely relatable terms. It's frozen water, a little bit salty, might be good in a margarita. Nice, nice. Uh, the salts strewn across Europa's surface are necessarily are, are a necessary ingredient for the strange glow. 
Radiation from Jupiter has an analogous effect on these compounds as a big cup of coffee might have on a person. Oh, God. Uh, if you're hypercaffeinated, you get very excited, Gudipati told me, told the author. Uh, same thing happens with molecules and atoms, but molecules and atoms can't remain in this excited state for long, and they return to normal by giving off energy in the form of photons, visible light. When Gudipati and his colleagues simulated a Europa bathed in radiation, they produced a glow that ranged from green to bluish to neon white, depending on which salts they'd mixed in with the ice. So can you get Europa going off like a disco ball? I mean, I hope so. Why else are we sending things to it, if not that? If not for a well, space, the, space rave. Because with the glow and the margarita salt, I'm imagining like those giant blue margaritas at Chili's. I think that's oh, what that moon is now. Yeah, That's pretty exciting. Yeah, blue curacao tinged yeah, margarita. That with huge like, chalice thing. Yeah, fun. Put in one of those like, um, those like fake ice cubes that have lights inside of them. <laughs> those are the shit yes. yeah <laughs> so cool stuff yeah it'll be cool in the next um in the next decade to also get to find out more about europa i think didn't they say yeah. is it just passing by i thought for some reason someone was trying to actually land something on it maybe that's a distant distant project i also have no idea how long it takes to send something to jupiter it's got to be many years right I yeah, I would think how so. How long think trip so. to I'm, Jupiter? I'm also excited. It's, it's sort of implied by that article that it just implies to me that NASA has had relative continuity the last four years. You know, I, I really would have imagined it would have been disrupted more by everything going on in the American government. But it's, it sounds like they just sort of kept plugging away at what they were doing before. That, that's good news. Yeah, Alex, we call that the deep state. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> No, it oh, is. I go to the meetings. Yeah, sure, sure. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it is sort of heartening that even in times of chaos, there are things that just keep chugging along that are positive. So, yeah, even we we've had guests who've worked for various NASA and NASA adjacent um, entities, and they also, you know, if we've ever made a political joke on the podcast, so like, can you edit that out? Because we are just supposed to remain so apolitical, we can't even acknowledge basic f- facts about the, you know inefficacy of Trump, for instance, or whatever. <laughs> but I guess that's, that's kind of nice to have this part of the world that continues operating in the midst of chaos elsewhere. Yeah, for real. And even like, even if it was a bunch of presidents I love in a row, I feel like I don't want them totally changing NASA's mission every four years or something. Because then, like, it seems like so many other projects take so much time. You just want steady, non-turbulence to, like, get that done. Yeah, I mean, imagine the '60s. Wasn't it 1960 when Kennedy said, "Before the end of the decade, oh. we're going to put a man on the moon," and then an assassination and a war later, we still got it in just under the wire. Like that's amazing. Yeah, nine and a half years later, that's what else and- is analogous to that in the last hundred years? <laughs> it's really the Manhattan Project on the moon, and one of those is a little bit uh, of a downer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think the plates on the moon, isn't it? Nixon signed them. Like two presidents who were totally different later still did it. Awesome. Wait, like, what happened? You know. Oh, just like they left behind, I think, a plate like said like, oh, we made it to the moon this day. And and it, it has Nixon's signature because he was the president. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess the last mission would have been in his administration. Oh, no, wait, he was elected in 68. That's oh, God. That's right. It wasn't even under Johnson that we I totally forgot. 68 was yeah, when he two got presidents elected. later. Crazy. And then he bugged the moon. It was terrible. Nixon, very bad. Don't. He still don't owns it. the moon, technically. He's been dead yeah, for yeah. years, but he the moon is still Nixon's. His real name <laughs> is Moon Nixon. 
one of Richard those Richard Moonhouse Nixon, yes. <laughs> yes. Moonhouse Nixon, yes, that's it. That's the one. <laughs> How about a story that, about a beetle that can survive getting run over by a car? Yeah. That's a, that's a hell of a beetle. Yeah, definitely. That's a... Because you know I've been... Uh, it's one of my lockdown hobbies has been driving over beetles and... Sure. It would be lovely to not have to keep buying new ones. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 honestly costing me a fortune in Beatles, but you know you got to you got to keep yourself entertained in these troubled times. It's really like a smoke smoke me if you got them sort of when it comes to hobbies. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so the diabolical iron. I also um, oh, sorry, uh, the 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 way you phrased that my my mind jumped to was that the origin of Paul is dead rumor and <laughs> the Beatles and I, it's it's not. I don't think it is. Uh, <laughs> They were all. I don't I mean, think it was a car thing. Look how brazenly all four jaywalk together. It's just they're asking for it, <laughs> right? So the diabolical ironclad beetle can survive getting run over by a car. Here's how. Um, so it's like, it's like a tiny tank on six legs. This is an article on ScienceNews.org, and this was sent in by Steve Ross in Albany. Thanks, um, Steve. Thank you, Steve. So the Steve. insects. The insect's rugged exoskeleton is so tough that the beetle can survive getting run over by cars, and many would-be predators don't stand a chance of cracking one open. Flodus diabolicus is basically nature's jawbreaker. It does look... It, it looks metal in every sense, both yeah. literally and metaphorically. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, analyses of microscope images, 3D-printed models, and computer simulations of the beetle's armor have now revealed the secret to its strength. Tightly interlocked and impact-absorbing structures that connect pieces of the beetle's exoskeleton and help it survive enormous crushing forces, researchers report in the October 2nd Nature. October 22nd. Uh, those features could inspire new, sturdier designs for things such as body armor, buildings, bridges, and vehicles. The diabolical ironclad beetle, <laughs> which dwells in desert regions of western North America, has a distinctly hard-to-squish shape. Unlike a stink beetle or a Namibian beetle, which is more rounded, it's low to the ground and it's flat on top, says David Casalis. Oh, God, those two, you squish without even thinking about it. It's so annoying. It's so squishable, yeah. <laughs> uh, so David's a material scientist at the University of California, Irvine. In compression experiments, Casalis and colleagues found that the beetle could withstand about 39,000 times its own body weight. That would be like a person shouldering a stack of about 40 M1 Abrams battle tanks. I mean, except things don't scale that way, but sure. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's my problem with Stan Lee always going like Ant-Man and Spider-Man because they can pick up a lot more times their weight. I like, well, it's because they're small. Um, <laughs> within, within the diabolical ironclad beetle's own tank-like physique, two key microscopic features help it withstand crushing forces. The first is a series of connections between the top and bottom halves of the exoskeleton. You can imagine the beetle's exoskeleton almost like two halves of a clamshell sitting on top of each other. Ridges along the outer edges of the top and bottom latched together. And there's a great um, cross-sectional slice you can see in this article if you want to click through the show notes. Um, those ridged connections have different shapes across the beetle's body. Near the front of the beetle, around its vital organs, the ridges are highly interconnected, almost like zipper teeth. Those connections are stiff and resist bending under pressure. The connected ridges near the back of the beetle, on the other hand, are not as intricately interlocked, allowing the top and bottom halves of the exoskeleton to slide past each other slightly. That flexibility helps the beetle absorb compression in a region of its body that's safer to squish. It's so good that it knows which part of itself is squishable. It's yeah. important to know in life. Alex, what, what do you think is the uh, biggest animal that you could squash? <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> like a regular beetle, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. a man. Like, <laughs> I and, and I mean both you. physically and also emotionally, so build yourself up to right. that point. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, I I am the bug squisher in the in the house, but. Uh, beyond that, I, I don't think I have the heart to do it. Yeah, like, <laughs> like they could start eating me, and I would think twice. You know, All right? Like yeah, if I've a s- pigeon got into your house, you wouldn't go at it with a hammer. You sort of, <laughs> <laughs> you'd guide it to the window. Yeah. I've, I've stopped having any fear of creepy crawlies from living out in the desert, and I'm not bragging, but you know, I used to be not not a fan of spiders, and now I don't mind them, but I still don't like having to squish anything that I'll feel the point when it gives and then the hummus comes out or whatever. Like I, that's just a thing I never want to, because all insects are made of hummus. Anything with an exoskeleton. they make hummus? Yeah. Anything with an exoskeleton is full of hummus. We all know this. <laughs> what, if, what if that was what got the researchers started on this? Like, I was squashing some beetles for hummus. And, you know, yeah. One of them, I, I thought there was no hummus in it. Turned out I didn't squish it. Crazy. <laughs> I brought the fucking pitas. No one brought the beetles, guys. What are we, what are we gonna dip these pitas in? Um, I actually saw my first tarantula yesterday on a hike. I hadn't seen a tarantula in the wild, and I I've, I'm so unafraid of spiders now that I like got up in its face to get pictures, and I was like, I kind of want to pet this thing. I forgot if they will try to bite you or not. Do you know off the top of your That's head cool, if tarantulas? Man. I'm trying to think. I think tarantulas. Well, I there are there are probably more than one species of them, but. I think they are more likely to irritate your skin. I'm, I think that's what I wasn't sure about whether those little hairs were like a thing that uh, is is an irritant. But, and almost like I guess this is one Google away that I'm not going to. But also, do. I know that yeah. if you go to certain like zoo demonstrations where they have bugs, they will put a tarantula on someone's head. Or right, right. Hands. Which I think would have yeah. terrified me before, but I think I could I could handle it now. But we, we've got the. Uh, the video online I, that you can look up of Andy and me both with what was it again? Was it giant Gal- crickets? Goliath stink bug or stick Goliath stick, stick bugs? Oh, that's right. Maybe? They were stick insects, weren't they? Climbing yeah. over our faces. One of them really hooked into. That's awesome. yeah. Did it hook into my lip or your lip? Someone's lip got hooked into. I forgot I who's it was. mine. Yeah. <laughs> and um. Yeah, we'd have to look it up again. Yeah. But yeah, that that that's online still. You can find that. But anyway, back to speedos. Sorry, I just want to say, I, I really enjoy Desert Andy. Desert Andy is really exciting to me. And <laughs> I, I a little bit wish you had done Jeopardy dressed as Desert Andy. Like in well, your big serape or whatever you wear there. Like really, really exciting. I, was, I guess I should probably post the picture of me at my um, castaway slash Unabomber peak. Because that, that's, when they, <laughs> that's when they interviewed me. And I wonder if they were casting me in the hopes of getting Unabomber Andy on the show just and then this... you showed up all clean shaven andy yeah it was the biggest <laughs> they got bushiest... swim team andy and they yeah. wanted <laughs> desert man andy is who auditioned it was very it's the longest beard i've ever grown in my life and uh that could have been that could have been what put me over the edge with the casting people i do not know <laughs> what were your we'll get back into the science in a second but what what anecdotes did you not have a chance to get to or are you now saving them in case you get to the tournament of champions oh um let me think whether... Well, first of all, I, I, did I already talk about the whole you can't plug things by name? I don't know if we mentioned it on air, but yeah, yeah I did know uh, that you... I saw on the Greatest of All Time tournament that Ken Jennings snuck of in like almost so quick you'd miss it, like the actual name of his podcast, Omnibus, in there. 
uh, like he was talking about a question. He's like, well, funny because that just came up on my podcast, Omnibus. And uh, I was like, well, they didn't, they didn't cut that out. Could I just like quickly say probably science? But they explicitly said like when one of my things was about Guilty Treasure, that music comedy show Brian Cook and I do. And she asked, does it, does it make any money? And I was like, well, I mean, we charge 10 bucks, but we've made no money ever. It's like just a thing for fun. But it's like the fact that we charge means I can't. So if I just said we didn't charge money. So could, could you have sort of said like, if you when he asked you about the the science aspect of the show, could you have said, well, it's, you know, it's probably got some science. Uh, some pro- <laughs> I really should have tried that. There's yeah. Pro- <laughs> but then again, I've I've called the like the the producer who's who was like paired with me, or the one who like called me to say we're inviting you on. I've called her with enough um, sort of questions like that that she's referred to me as a brat in past conversations, <laughs> lovingly and with a laugh. But she's like, "You're a brat." I'm like, no, I'm just asking. Like, is oh, this okay? Is this it. okay? Uh, <laughs> I forgot. No, but the, but the, the the thing that how the prompts was a very long. I remember, I remember by the time I sent it in, it was like 10 pages and that was only having like a two sentence answer to each of their questions. Did you have a super long one yeah. to, to answer Alex? Yeah. Similar paperwork, similar self-description. And I think the same rule about plugging stuff. Yeah. And well, I also remember, well, cause with mine, it was not COVID time. So all of us contestants kind of spent the day together. And I remember at lunchtime, they needed to pull me aside to ask me for an additional story or two, just in case. And that, oh, that felt very fun. So that, but then also I panicked because I was like, I only have five stories. I thought so hard, you know. So, yeah. I, but I, I came through. It worked out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I was super happy that he, yeah, got to plug the podcast. Uh, yeah, the treasure. You got like five good Andy facts out. I can't remember what else it was though. The you got, team. you got podcast. If I remember right, you got podcast, guilty treasures, swim team. Um, oh, Bridgetown. Bridgetown. It doesn't exist right. anymore, yeah, but yeah, that yeah. was it's cool. Just, and then the second day was my like two-word answer because he asked what kind of stuff I write. And I had this instant... Um, like I, it looks like I answered instantly, but like I actually just quickly did... Okay, I can't name any of the shows that I've written for because that's like a plug. If I had to describe the last thing I wrote for, which is Could You Survive the Movies, it would be like a long-winded... And then I'm like, also, I'm sure they want to downplay any of our involvement in TV. You know, I, I imagine this. Maybe it's not true, but I imagine the listeners don't... The viewers don't want to be reminded that, that one of these contestants also works in TV, so it all looks like it's some kind of inside job. Because so your oh, season, yeah. they were only able to use people who lived in or near L.A., yeah, I mean, there have there definitely been a bunch of other people who work in the industry on in the past, but I just like, I'm like, oh, they well, don't want to hear. Such as, for example, the person you're on with on the final episode, <laughs> who has worked on a TV show with both of us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so I just said like, oh, sometimes science, sometimes comedy, it depends on what the gig calls for. That was it, but whatever. No, yeah, you did well. Those were your five your five dotes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, I, I, I haven't seen a tarantula in the wild, but when we were in Utah, I also didn't see any monoliths. But we did see, we did see a scorpion just in a gas station. Jesus, it was. We were just That's, man. We were just refueling on the road, and just suddenly there was a scorpion scampering across the forecourt. But also, those guys, out. much like tarantulas, pretty pretty easy to outrun. You know, those aren't very like uh, they're not going to suddenly strike and like a snake and like coil up and get a good yeah leap no, on you. I pointed it out. So there was another car that was a couple of pumps away from us. And I pointed it out to the person who was filling the tank just more because of like, 
hey, watch out, there's a scorpion there. But that led to all four of them getting out of the car and then going right up to it to take photographs. Yeah, I mean, that's what I, I found one in my garage and I, that's what I did for like 10 minutes. I was like, oh, this is cool. But I also almost got bitten by it. Like, I, I only saw him because as I'm did walking Did they out, bite you or sting you or, or both? I'm sorry. Well, I saw, the reason I saw him was because his stinger tried to, like I, I had left the garage door open and the garage light on and my car door open. Don't do that in the desert. I just forgot, I was unloading groceries and I forgot that I did that for like a few hours. And I went back out to, uh, to close, to fix all that. But I went out in my socks and um, I only saw this guy because I was six inches from him and he had done the motion like he was going to sting me. And that's what drew my eye to wow. him. So I really cut it close. But those things, you know, you don't get that messed up. Our friend works on a, on a reality competition show right now and she just told us that, uh, yeah, the, uh, the scorpion wrangler uh, just got bitten by a scorpion. <laughs> He put it in his mouth, and guess what? It bit his mouth. Or, I mean, it stung his mouth, like inside his mouth. It doesn't kill you. It's just going to be a, a, a bad day, I think. <laughs> but, uh, okay, back to the Beatles for a little bit. We'll finish this up. So, the part of the body so, that's safer to squish. Yeah, so the second key feature of the this beetle anatomy is a rigid joint, or suture, that runs the length of the beetle's back and connects its left and right sides a series of protrusions called blades fit together like jigsaw puzzle pieces to join the two sides. These blades contain layers of tissue glued together by proteins and are highly damage resistant. When the beetle is squashed, tiny cracks form in the protein glue between the layers of each blade. These small healable fractures allow the blades to absorb impacts without completely snapping, explains Jesus Rivera, an engineer at UC Irvine. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So it's not that it completely withstands the pressure. It sort of allows itself to break in a very organized way that can then be rebuilt very quickly. So this toughness makes the diabolical ironclad beetle pretty predator-proof. An animal might be able to make a meal of the beetle by swallowing a hole, Kisalius says, but the way it's built in terms of other predation, let's say a bird that's pecking at it or a lizard that's trying to chew on it, the exoskeleton will be really hard to track. Sorry, Kizalos, I think, is I add an extra I. I don't know how to say it, yeah. This, that hard exterior is also a nuisance yeah. for insect collectors. The diabolical ironclad beetle is notorious amongst entomologists for being so <laughs> fantastically durable that it bends <laughs> the steel pins used, usually used to mount insects for display, says entomologist Michael Catherino of Clemson University <laughs> in South Carolina. But the basic... Bi- <laughs> like, that's the real problem with this beetle. You can't nail it to a, to a wall. Right. Just but, calling home, like, honey, I'm going to be late to dinner. I have to pin a beetle. And yeah, you know what it's, it's like. It's the hard one. We got to drill No hummus, all hard. <laughs> hey, it's going gonna, it's gonna to save some hummus for me at home. I'll have no hummus here. <laughs> so Michael says, the basic biology of this thing is not particularly well known. I found it fascinating to learn what makes the beetle so indestructible. And the Caterino adds, the possibility of using beetle-inspired designs for sturdier planes and other structures is intriguing. And with the splendid variety of insects all over the world, who knows what other critters might someday inspire clever engineering designs. I think they can just exist on their own. That's pretty cool. We don't have to figure out how to copy them for it to be interesting. I don't know. I I, want to know how we can get an airplane that we can't nail to a wall. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this beetle does feel like the the incredibly cordial joke about making the whole plane out of the black box. Right. This is the nature black box. <laughs> and how do we build everything out yeah. of it? Why do they build uh, all animals out of this beetle? Yeah. Yeah. 
<laughs> I do wonder just what get it... like unstoppable dogs and possums and stuff now like we did it everything's this beetle that's it that's what we all need is an unstoppable dog I'm sick of all these dogs that can stop easily <laughs> <laughs> Alex we, we should probably wrap things up but where can our listeners find everything that you're doing and find you in general I thank you so much for having me I yeah website is alexschmitty.com it's my name with a y on the end and the new show is Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. You can find it at sifpod.fun is the Patreon, or you can just search Secretly Incredibly Fascinating in your podcast app. It, it's it's just a few months old, and I love making it. It's been really fun. That's great. Awesome. You can find us, as always, at probablyscience.com. That's also where all the show notes with the story links are and our donation links. Thank you very much, all of the donors. And you can find us on Twitter at Probably Science, individually at Annie T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen. Probably science at gmail.com is the email address for any questions, comments, clarifications, and stories you would like us to cover. Uh, did I forget anything, Andy? No, I think that's it. Well, go me. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us as well. And we will see you next time. Yeah, thanks. And congratulations again, Andy. Thank you so much. <laughs>